Hello everyone and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast, where we chat everything and anything related to the world of music and occasionally focus on topics a little bit unrelated. My name is Scott Cowie. I am a drummer turned comedy singer-songwriter and apparently now a podcaster. You're going to hear me chat to many different people, but more often than not, it will be fellow musicians having conversations about their careers and lives within, arguably, the greatest art form in the world. And you get this for free each and every week on scottcowie.com, on Stitcher Radio, and now on iTunes. So please rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, let them know what's going on over here. But for now, enjoy the show. Guest this week in the podcast, Jinky Gilmer, fantastic songwriter from Coat Bridge. I'm with my main man right now, Gary John Kane. How are we? I'm alright. How are Gary John's putting on a different voice this week <laughs> just to show his versatility. And I've just sprung this upon him because he's running my flat and I've just said I'm going to hit record because we're going to do a little bit of podcasting and he doesn't know that I've recorded an interview with Jinky Gilmer and he's now the co-host on that particular podcast. But you know Jinky very well. How good is he? I've known Jinky since, my goodness. Could be good close to uh, 30 years. I was a kid and his dad used to run the football team and Jinky was a wee sort of good looking singer. And I'm sure... He went to America or Canada to join a band called, um, I think it was called Joe Public. Whatever happened didn't work out, but he came home and I remember, this is true, and Jenky will maybe remember it too, that he supported one of the bands I was in and the old Club de France in Coatbridge and he just back and wanted a gig. So we got him, he says, can I just turn up with my guitar and play? Which he's stunning at, as you've seen him, he's a great voice. So he did his gig and in the audience that night was Jimmy Neal for the Sciences who said, would you like to join my band? And then he joined the silencers. And then from then on, he's just went through, went solo and stuff like that. So I'm full responsibility for JJ Gilmer. I'm claiming that on this radio uh, station right now. <laughs> if it wasn't for me and my rubbish wee band at the Club de France, Jinky would have been nowhere. I'm only joking. He's a, he's a talent. He's but so I good. get his albums all the time. In fact, I'm sure I sponsored his last album through one of those Kickstart things. You right. buy a pledge or whatever. It's great, great. I love his, his voice. It breaks your heart. Actually, it makes you cry sometimes when he sings. In a good way, in a good way. Well, I was going to say, because one of the things that you said to me a while ago was that Jinky's voice, it just melts your heart, and it's such a good way of putting it. And his songs just mean so much to people, particularly in this area, because he obviously pulls such a big crowd being being a local lad and everything. He works hard, but... Absolutely, yeah. He gigs all the time, and he's just... I love him just on his own, but I've seen him with... I think I can't remember his namesake guy, Kane, I can't remember his first name. I should do. Piano player, it's lovely, that's really good as well. But I've... Every time I see my gig, I just sit down, I can watch the guy, f- and he puts on a show for everyone, he puts on mm. a great show. And he's a character, you know what I mean? Ah, he's fine. And I like his Irish folk looking around with the grey hair and all that, he looks, uh, he's fitting in the hills of Donegal really well, I don't know he stays out there now, so he's actually, he's fitting in that zone now, you know what I mean? He's got, he's got his final wish, great songwriting and great hair. So. Have you ever played them? I have actually, I played on, I played bass on his album over at your place, at the Foundry, over on... Right, Motherwell, yep. Motherwell, I played on one of his albums, I've played two tracks I think. That was quite a good session. Actually, I came in with all these great ideas, and I just go boom, boom. <laughs> I'd worked out for a double bass and all that. I thought it was all classy. I was going to give it the pure. Yeah, man, I'm cool, but it didn't work out. But it was the single was great, and aye, and I've, I know I've played gigs. I've played at King Touchstone as well. Oh no, we Jinky have got a good history together. I mean, there you go. Now you're on the podcast with him. Hi, Jinky. Love the, you. The last time you were on the podcast, it was with Norman Watt Roy. 
of course, which has received a lot of great attention on the internet. And now you're on a. It doesn't matter if you received a lot of good attention. Exactly, yeah. It's it's one of these things. Because you were on it, it, you know, boosted the ratings. Do you up. Think I've got another city now because I've been on there. Absolutely. I mean, you gave that plug to Tom Urie. Um, I was an so extra another city once. Were you? What did you do? <laughs> I walked across the street and I sat <laughs> and I sat in the cafe. But I get kicked off the show. Do you know why? I, I, I could hazard a guess and probably be right. I get typecast as an Ed, right? And I had to hand over guns to Roisin, right, at the shop. Now, you don't own Soap World, but people watch Soap, see if you get a bit part or actual part. That's you out, you can't even extra, because you can't go... See that guy sitting in the yeah. cafe? He was the guy who handed guns to Roisin, right? So I thought I was made the big time, I get an extra tenner, right? <laughs> and the guy said to us, right, walk up to the shop, and I'd like a pure Ned suit on, and Sovies and my rings and all that, and a bag of fake guns, obviously, kids. And I gets to the door, and Roisin opens it and goes, are those the guns for Gary? And I was supposed to say, yeah, and I went, aye. Guys like cut, perfect, parochial accent and all that, you've got it down to a T, that was it. So I was waiting for the phone call, I thought I was moving out in the big time. Never to be seen again on River City, never to darken its door at Dumbarton ever again. It's a shame. They're lost. They're lost, I think. I was moving, I was writing, I was James Dean mode never, and I was going Brando. You know? Well, yeah, exactly. You know, a guy coming in with guns, it could make that show a lot better than what it is. Never mind Sopranos, man. We were there. Uh, well, the, the, the Scottish <laughs> version, you know. <laughs> Broadwalk Empire, no, that, no, no, River City, that guy with the guns. So that was me, I was my acting career over, but I enjoyed it. It was brief, but it was emotional. I mean. Jinky's going to be delighted when he's listening back to this, because Gary Jones just went into total self-promotion mode, but I'm loving <laughs> sorry, it. Sorry, because I thought uh, you asked me a question about River City, sorry. It's uh, fine, but button up, I've got a single coming out where we're at it we spoke about this the yes. last time Tar targeting the end of March called not interested uh, end of February sorry not interested I've actually just got a guy to do the video I'm going to do it in a local pub I don't know if that's a good idea or not but it's going to be done can I be in it you, Scott you're front, front row we need some handsome guy to sit at the bar um, listen um, I know someone to one of the lines of song goes he sits there with his head in his hands so you could be the guy that sits there with his head in his hands you heard it here first ladies and gentlemen <laughs> now there's two reasons to check out the new button up single because I'm going to be in the video <laughs> promise and I'll be having that bag of guns from River City and we're <laughs> all making it. <laughs> we're with Gary John Kane on the podcast with Jinky Gilmore. We're going to get right to the interview. It's going to be a good one. Okay, I am back on the Talk Music Podcast with um, a songwriter that I really admire, actually, Mr. JJ Gilmore. How are you, sir? Very well, Scott. Thank you. How are you? I, I'm okay. I'm going to give you the news just now as to who's co-hosting this. It's a... Uh, it's, um, <laughs> Someone that we both unfortunately know, um, Gary John Kane. Excellent, great laddie. <laughs> right, so you played with Gary John, tell us about it. Uh, well, I've known Gary John for ages, obviously going to school with his big brothers. Um, so uh, he was kind of the, the baby. Um, I think the first real proper interaction I had with Gary John was in Jersey when he was over on holiday with the school and I was living there. Um, and uh, they were sneaking out to... to do underage drinking, and uh, and Gary John get caught. Um, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> why does this not surprise me? <laughs> I know, I know, but uh, no, he's a great laddie and a great bass player and the kind of quiet man amongst the canes. He sort of went about his business really quietly, and then before we all knew it, he was forming his own bands and then um, obviously getting the the job um, with the Proclaimers. Um, he should have got the Silencers job a few years earlier. But, you know, it got a better band than the Proclaimers. <laughs> <laughs> it started already, like it. Right, okay, so early doors, you just mentioned you're at school there. Are you playing at this point? What time did you start playing the guitar and singing and writing and all that? I mean, I was always singing. My kind of first TV performance when I was six, um, 
on a kids TV show um, and uh, for London Weekend Television at that time. And um, but I never really started. I was always playing in bands when I was like twelve or thirteen, but I never really started taking it seriously until as I joined my first band when I was fifteen. But it was a covers band, and uh, I wasn't really enjoying it. And then <clears throat> I started uh, kind of looking at different different angles. And I think I was sixteen or something when I I started trying to work on original material. And there was a wee studio opened uh, in Coatbridge called the Sound Lab. Um, and actually, uh, Pat and Greg were rehearsing in there as well, um, as well as Brian McPhee. They were in Valerie in the Week of Wonders before the big dish arrived. I think Greg was in Valerie as well, actually. He was. Um, and uh, Greg was playing sax then. Was he really? And, uh, <clears throat> yeah. There you go. Yeah. And, um, and that's kind of where it, it, it started, just... Doing, doing some recordings and very early recordings in there, but I left. I left uh, Scotland when I was eighteen. So, you know, um, I'd always been back and forth and back and forth, but I, but I more or less left when I was eighteen to go and pursue the the, the dream. You know, and I uh, ended up travelling halfway around the world and only to come back to Coatbridge and, and get my first break, first real break. Excellent. Now, so what's the time frame then, Silencers? When does that come into play? Is that a few years later? Is that around about this time? What's, what's going on? I'm living in Canada, in Vancouver. Uh, when I left, I went. I left Coatbridge at eight, just before, just after I was eighteen, I think, um, and uh, went off to Jersey, and realised quite quickly in Jersey that there would be nothing to do there but just play covers again and just uh, and play wee cover bars. So. Um, I got a chance to go to Canada and, and got picked up um, by a guy called Tom Lavin who was in a band called The Powder Blues and they were involved with Bruce Allen who was the kind of Brian Adams' manager at the time um, and they sort of got me into the studio and I started demoing and, uh, and they were all for it, they were all for signing me and all that stuff but uh, really strangely what, what happened in between all that was the silencers were touring and um, they came by Vancouver and we t- I just kind of spotted it in, 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 the, in the newspaper just saying, God, this is the Silencers, this is amazing. I wonder if it's the same band because I knew there was an American band called the Silencers as well uh, and it turned out it was them and met up with them and kind of in those days it was cassettes and gave Jimmy a cassette. Jimmy O'Neill, who's the singer of the band, gave him a cassette of what I was doing and um, and he was... Um, it was uh, it was great, good, really good constructive criticism. He just said, "I think the voice is great, but I'm not too sure about the songs, and um, I think you should work at it." And, and so they kind of headed off uh, to do the rest of the tour. And then about four months later, I got a phone call. Um, actually, they headed off. I realised that what I was doing in Canada wasn't the right thing. I moved back to Scotland and went to Dundee. And, didn't come back to Coatbridge because of the shame. That was what was going on in my head anyway. And um, and, and totally out of the blue, I got a phone call from Jimmy um, saying that the band were doing their third album and could I come and help them just doing some vocals and stuff. And, and the rest was really history, you know, kind of joined as a backing singer and then and that was me as part of the band. A band that I loved, incidentally, I absolutely loved the silencers. I thought Painted Moon was one of the freshest things I'd heard for years. Um, so, yeah, it was amazing. 
So the transition from backing vocalist to, you know, a lot of people recognise you for a period of time anyway, being the lead singer in that band. How does this happen? How does the dynamics uh, shift over that period of time? Well, uh, ironically, it happened um, with Jimmy's, it was more or less Jimmy's idea initially was to get me in doing some, to do some, you know, uh, main vocals. And he had proposed that to BMG Records. Um, but I didn't think what happened was there was a guy called Corda Marshall at the at the label at the time, and I'm not sure. I mean, I can only say how I felt about this. Jimmy might have a different a, a view on this, and he might indeed have a different story about this. But I don't, I'm not sure that it was it was meant that I should sing as many songs as I should sing because Jimmy really was the main singer of the band, and then all of a sudden there was this guy who Jimmy had brought in to do to do backing vocals and to help along, and now now I was singing the songs, so it turned out to be that I ended up singing nine of the songs, of the 12 songs on, on the on the fourth album, and I'm not sure Jimmy had intended that, he may have done, but my memory strikes me as that it didn't really rest um, with Jimmy, I don't think that was his intention, I think his intention was to, was, to um, was for him, for us to kind of, for me to feature on some, or guest on some, but I think the record company had other ideas. Um, and then that's kind of how we became a kind of dual front man thing because I started singing, you know, more of the songs um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and I don't know, you know, I don't know whether the record company saw me just as a younger and, 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 and um, I don't know, more of a pretty boy for the, fa- for the fans or something. I don't know, I don't know, but I was kind of pushed more to the forefront. I'm not saying that I didn't enjoy it, but it wasn't, it wasn't what I'd intended, you know. Having met you three or four times, having met Jimmy a handful of times as well, you're a strong a strong personality, as is he. Are you guys getting on in that in the band? Is there a bit of conflict? Talk us through that. Yeah, I mean, I think we were getting we were getting on initially because I mean it, it was a complete. Uh, it was a mammoth step for me. I mean, I had gone from playing. Uh, busking in St Andrews uh, when the golf was on to two weeks later playing in Paris um, or maybe two months later, somewhere close like that anyway, to playing a, a showcase in Paris with a band and Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics was joining us on stage. I mean, it really was quite a surreal jump. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was completely overawed by being in the same band as uh, Jimmy O'Neill and uh, Burns. Um, I didn't get the chance, unfortunately, to play with Joe Donnelly or Martin Hanlon. Um, they had, they had both left the band at that time, so the band was in a transitional period anyway. And, but um, yeah, I mean, as often in families, or you know, when you're in a band, it's like a wee, it's like a wee family. You, you stick together, and um, the, the relationship started to come a bit fraught. You know, a lot of that was um, regrettable. Um, and uh, and when you know in hindsight you, you wouldn't have done a lot of the same things that you would have done now, um, but yeah you know I don't harbour any grudges or anything. It was it was an incredible um, gesture for Jimmy to step aside and, and allow someone like me to sing, um, which were songs that he'd probably written for himself, mm-hmm. uh, certainly for the band, with maybe him intended on singing them, um, but um, yeah. So what started off as a, a really loving the uh, respectful friendship it, it, it kind of it got a bit fraught towards the end and, and subsequently that's why I left um, because it got a bit 
fraught. You know, I, I didn't want to. Um, uh, you know, it would have been. It, it would, I would have ended up uh, hating the situation, and I didn't want that to happen. You know. A little bit off topic, but I suppose on the subject of songwriting, who writers do you like? Um, at the moment, I love, um, for the last few years, my favourite writer has been a Canadian guy called Ron Sexsmith. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a brilliant uh, songwriter. Um, and, uh, I mean, old school, I love John Lennon and Tom Waits. and um, uh, I, I love Sting. I think he's a brilliant writer. Um, and Scottish writers... Uh, I loved uh, Paul Buchanan and and, and, uh, and uh, Michael Mara, who obviously Pat and Greg covered one of their great songs. And of course, you know Pat and Greg wrote some brilliant songs as well. I mean, Coatbridge was was spewing talent at one point. Um, but yeah, my favourite, my, I suppose my favourite modern day writer would be um, would be Ron Sexsmith. You know, who who never really seemed to uh, uh, get the big break, although. Michael Bublé's doing a couple of these songs now, which again, again, is a, it's tipping, tipping your heart to him. But he, he would certainly be one of my favourite writers at the moment. That's really cool. Now, um, I don't know if you've have you actually done writing for other people. Have you have you dabbled in that at all? I mean, I've never really, I've never intentionally done it. Although there are people that have covered my songs. Um, you know, uh, but I've never, I haven't, I, I, you know, it was kind of funny because when I, when just, I was living in Jersey, uh, and I, I met up with these two guys, a guy called Ray Hedges, who's a, who's a, who's a songwriter, and he does a lot of writing for acts that come back and forth from X Factor and different things, he's, he's actually involved in X Factor, and we're still we're still discussing whether that would ever be likely that, that, that he would do some, some writing for, um, not necessarily for those acts, but maybe those acts would cover some of your songs, which you know um, you. Uh, uh, so I've never, I've never, I've, I, you know, I've never actively set out to write for anyone, but people have, uh, people, certain people have covered my songs, which is lovely, you know. Now, about three or four years ago, I'm really bad with time frames and everything. Okay, but I remember Graham Duffin from the Foundry yeah. Music Lab, in which you recorded. Uh, yeah. and, and uh, we know Graham very well I remember him turning around to me one day and he says, wait till you hear this Jinky is going to be writing the music, uh, putting together music for the George Best musical Right now how did this come about, tell us the story behind this I mean it was another one of those strange ones, I had been in Jersey um, and, and um, I kind of think that, uh, Jersey was good in, in a lot of fashions for me but it wasn't certainly uh, kind of ostracised myself from, from a lot of the music people um, but what it did was it helped me try and find myself as a writer um, and uh, I had this idea um, I think it was just really born out of I, I'd saw Blood Brothers many years ago and I never thought I would like musicals I'd always kind of liked the idea of songs and films and as far back as South Pacific and stuff, happy talking and all that sort of thing where, where songs really made films I thought Oliver and, and those kind of things but I saw this kind of working man's tale of blood brothers of these two Liverpool people and most people know the story anyway but there was these really sort of um, I don't know they were just like working man's songs and songs that you believed that, they, that, 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 that these people should sing um, and Willie Russell just he'd never I don't think he'd ever written music for, for shows before and um, and I kind of just got into that vibe, and then 
and and then somewhere along the line, I, I thought I should try and write something like this, and and I stumbled on Mother. I, I love football, um, and uh, and I thought about Jimmy Johnston, um, and then and then when I thought more about it, George George Best was life um, was just incredible. Um, and it was a, one of those tragic tales, um, and I thought, God, that would make a really interesting musical. And I started writing songs for it, and I played, I played the songs and the idea um, to some friends of mine in Jersey, and, and they were like, "That's a really good idea." But of course, that's your friends; they would say that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that sort of just came off uh, of of uh, one of my pals uh, had said to me, "If you could find someone uh, to write this with you, I'll help you out financially with it." Um, and, and but by then, a couple of things had happened that I had moved to Belfast. I'd moved to Ireland, and um, it was only through actually it was really strange. It was through bumping into Gilbert O'Sullivan, the great Gilbert O'Sullivan, the songwriter. Um, he had been uh, my neighbour in Jersey and also a friend, and uh, and and he had known that I had been working on this and I met up with him in Belfast and I was kind of grieving the death of a friend at the time and he said, you know, to combat all this stuff that's going on in your life and this grieving of your friend passing away you should go back into writing this musical this idea that you had, that, that seemed like a really good idea and I thought, God, this is a guy that's had sold millions of records and there's worldwide success I should be listening to this guy mm-hmm. so <clears throat> it turned out that the bass player that was playing with him that, that night was a big guy called Nicky Scott, who's a very good bass player. And he uh, he said he knew this woman who wrote um, who wrote plays, and she was very successful in Ireland. And because I didn't write the books, the book as we would call it after the script, but they call it the book. Um, I couldn't write the book. I tried to write the script, but I couldn't. Um, I thought, well, I should go and have a, a meeting with this woman. And it took us ages to, to, to track this woman down. And first of all, I met a musician called Pat Gribben, um, uh, a Belfast brilliant musician. And, and uh, we had gone then to meet this woman, Mary Jones, who had written these uh, two successful plays. The one, both of them had, had been on Broadway and had been in the West End. And, um, and we told her the, the idea that afternoon. And then... Um, it went really from that afternoon, you know, I was just going down to see what it would be like to talk to a playwright about this. And she asked us to sing a couple of the songs. And her and her husband, who's a guy called Ian McElhenney, he's quite a successful actor, he's in that uh, Game of Thrones and things like that. And he, um, they sat and listened to the songs and they thought, it, they thought the songs were brilliant. And, um, and that was it. It took off from there and then, you know, it, it became... It became a, a success in Ireland. It's, got, it's coming back out next year again. So it was really strange. That's brilliant. I really look forward to, to potentially getting a, an opportunity to see that. Now, obviously, your songwriting approach is going to differ from writing your own stuff, writing music for the, the George Best musical. Uh, have you got a, do you have a certain approach? Do you have lyrics first, melodies? How does it all come about? I think, you know, like most writers, it's usually an idea, it's usually something that spurs them on. Um, if they hear another tune, that insp- I quite often hear other tunes and that inspires you to write a tune. Um, by hearing the other tune, I like going in and pl- trying to play the other tune, play the tune that I hear, and then find out what I like about it. And then I forget about it, and then a couple of days later I'll start working on a song, and I'll know that it's came from, from that idea. And from the other perspective, 
it's usually things that I read, and I'm not an avid reader, I don't read a lot, um, so it's usually from a, a, a newspaper or something that I see on the news, um, and, uh, and I'm quite a, a, a melancholic writer, so it's usually a, a sad stories um, that, that they kind of get me going. They don't have to necessarily be ballads or, or, or sad pieces of music, but it's usually stories that are, that are um, you know, those, those stories that you see on the news and you go, oh my God, this is, this is incredible. How could something like this happen? This is usually unfair, you know, um, stories, and that's usually what I write about. Um, but a lot of them can be personal as well. I always find that if you're writing a song, it's just your take on an event. The events, you know, the events either happened or it's going to happen or, or you don't want it to happen or you do want it to happen, but it's always your take on whatever that is. So it's just, um, I often think that most great songwriters um, are no different from people that are trying to learn the trade. I think that what they've achieved is usually... Um, They've worked on it long enough to be really good wordsmiths and to understand that you can twist words and and because the English language is there to be bastardised, um, as the Americans have done really well, um, and just uh, and just twist twist a lyric, you know, like things like uh, a tall story could be a story, but it can also be a building. You know, so you can twist a lyric like that, and and that's I love stuff like that. You know, um, and also changing spellings. Rappers are really good at changing spellings. I mean, very basic ones. I love like L U V and stuff. You know, but that just inspires. If you see L U V written down, um, and then you go into a sort of, um, you don't necessarily look for a rhyme. You just look for something that's quirky, like love. Um, I remember writing a song one time actually when you talk about writing for other writers I was writing a song for a young Newcastle guy and it was they were trying they were looking for a chorus and um, and it was all about uh, the whole song was about words um, and I remember just using all these crafty wee things like clever cat you know I mean it's just dead basic but a clever cat you know and you just go wow that's that's really good that should really work um, Michael Mara was a brilliant lyricist. Um, John Lennon was a fantastic lyricist, you know. But I think the reason they became good is they stuck with it. Right. I, th- I think if you don't stick with it, I think if you write a song and you know, like the Beatles, when you listen to the Beatles' early stuff, it's you know, all you need is love, love, love. You know, help. I need somebody help. I need some. But then when you listen to Paul McCartney later and, and John Lennon later, and and even um, you know uh, George Harrison later, they're writing these really crafted. Adult lyrics are no longer just singing, you know, about you know uh, skiffle bands in Liverpool. They're writing about the world, you know, um, and uh, and I think that's I think the, there's 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 a magic in, in language. I never did really well at school. I did really poorly at school, but I really enjoy being um, a late student. I like it, you know, and that's that's what inspires. I, I, I love just finding out about words and um, and getting them wrong. It's good because if you get it wrong and somebody tells you it's wrong, you'll go and find out what's right. JJGilmar.co.uk, 5th of December. JJ is playing Irvine the very next night. He's in Airdrie Town Hall. And on the 31st of December, you're playing at Stirling Castle. Are you looking forward to those guys coming up? 
Brilliant. I mean, Irvine's an amazing gig. Um, it's the Harbour Arts Centre, it's, you know, and and the Airdrie Hall is another amazing gig. I mean, that you know, it's just a beautiful space. Um, and I've always said that I would love to play venues all around Europe. I've lost a bit of my European audience over the last few years. I've lost most of it, actually. But I've got, I'm really inspired to try and get it back because those, those kind of 100 people every night... I heard you joking on your interview with uh, Stuart Copeland about how you played to 60 people. Um, and, 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 and you... I don't know... I, 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 forgive me if I've picked this up wrong but there was a part of Stuart Copeland that actually liked that and I don't mean he liked the 60 numbers he liked the fact that 60 people had came to see you and ironically I was talking to his brother uh, Miles Copeland who used to manage me um, two or three nights ago uh, and um, and we were talking about trying to get something together for me to go to America to do and we were talking about audience sizes and actually from 60 to, to a couple of hundred people is a fantastic audience size. If you could play that audience size all around the world, you couldn't pay me enough to travel, or, you know, or you couldn't pay me so little. I mean, I'd do it, you wouldn't do it for nothing because you've got to eat. But from 60 people to 200 people is a fantastic size. After that, it starts getting a wee bit difficult because you can't reach, you know, beyond... Uh, maybe if it's rows of 10 or rows of 20, you can't reach beyond 20 rows after that, you're starting to lose people you start, your vision starts to go, you can't see them so well, so if you know, if Scott Cowie could go and play the whole world to 60 people I bet you'd do it oh, every night absolutely, well that's the thing it's like funny you should mention that because um, on that that podcast I don't, I don't know if you heard that all, but we jokingly uh, Sandy was in on the gag, you know, called up Sandy Tom and I said, hey, I'm playing a Staples Centre, you need to do security and everything. But that's somebody that, um, that immediately springs to mind because she does exactly that. She's, um, you know, she's not playing SECC and places like that, but she's she's got enough of a following that enables her to go from town to town in every bloody country in the world and make a living. And I think, that, I mean, that's living the dream regardless of whether it's, it's 60 people or the odd time there's 500, 600 people there. We'd all settle for that. I think that's absolutely amazing, you know. And she'll make more money doing that than, than the people that are around plenty of thousand people that are having to pay tour managers and stage production and buses and you know. I mean, the idea that Miles and I were talking about was three singer song, or three singers, uh, guitar players traveling America with a, a hint of Celtic stuff about them without giving the game away. Um, it was just a. It, it was a. It was getting back to the basics because everybody wants to play. But I mean, someone like you know, there's there's artists that I really envy. Uh, one of them is uh, the guy Mike Peters from the Alarm. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mike Mike's got a fantastic business ethic, um, and um, and so does uh, like guys like Nick Kershaw and stuff. Nick Nick's the same. These guys have got they've got a wonderful appetite for, for the music industry and. Uh, and, uh, and and those are the, the, the those are the kind of people that I strive to be because um, none of us are getting any younger. We're we're certainly a lot, you know, we're certainly a, a good bit older than yourself, and and, uh, and uh, so we have to we have to see can we maintain what we're doing because I don't want to be a pop star anymore. I've already been a pop star, uh, albeit it might have been a short window, it might have been six or seven years, and I thoroughly enjoyed it and I thought it was fantastic. But I don't want to be that anymore. I, although I do want to still try and uh, be a gigging musician, uh, um, 
what I don't want to be is a guy that has to uh, play in bars and do covers to to um, to you know to subsidise gigs that I can't find. I want to work twice as hard to find gigs that I can play my original songs at. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing wrong with playing a bar in covers if that's what you do. That's a fantastic way to earn your living. But that's not what I set out to do. And that would be a compromise for me. And, and I would rather shovel shit than do that because I would enjoy shoveling shit more than than, than, than singing um, singing uh, John Legend songs or, or um, you know, or um, Ed Sheeran to to two fantastic writers but I don't want to sing their songs mm-hmm. I want to sing my songs and if that means that I can travel the world playing or even a handful of countries for, for the next 10 or 15 years playing my songs to 60 people in every place that we go to <laughs> man that is the dream that's living the dream as you say that totally living the dream um, so you know I mean there's, there was a guy supporting um Ed Sheeran, uh, an Irish guy who lives in Scotland, uh, try to remember his name. Uh, he's a brilliant singer-songwriter, and he's 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 a guy that I think will probably do that for the next ten or fifteen years. He's got a very unusual name. I'll remember his name in a minute. Um, but yeah, that's the, that's the dream, Scott. That's that's what it's all about. It's all about doing your own thing, and I mean, you're doing your your comedy uh, songs and and. Um, forgive me if that's not the term that you use no that's absolutely right that's absolutely right you know but I mean you can imagine being if Scott Cowie was the John Cooper Clark for the next 25 years you know just travelling the world reciting great songs and with a hint of comedy in them Um, I mean that'd be amazing and doing your podcasts from your hotel every night Absolutely, you know. aye. If anybody's listening, make this happen, eh? And uh, make sure we get this George, George Best musical on it. I can't wait to see this. It's re- really, really intriguing. Like you said, a great story about George Best. Oh, sorry, a great story, his life. And um, yeah. the fact that it's on the stage is very intriguing for all us George Best and music fans, indeed. Don't forget, jjgilmer.co.uk. Go and see him live. He's brilliant. Great with an audience. Very interactive. Coming to a town near you. So make it happen. Thank you very much, Jinky, for joining me. Thank you, Scott. I was, and I'm sorry it was delayed, uh, uh, but I'm back fighting fit. And, and I just want to say thanks to anybody that supports me. Um, it's really important to me that people come and watch me. I've never, I think there's been times where I've taken it for granted, but uh, I certainly don't take it for granted anymore. Once again, 5th of December, Irvine, Saturday, the 6th, the very next night, at the Airdrie Town Hall, great venue, and of course the 31st of December, the main act that's going to be in Stirling Castle that night is of course JJ Gilmer. Thanks very much, Jinky, and we will see you guys next week. Thank you. The main act that night is actually the Water Boys. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Listen, that's the headline act, but the main act is JJ Gilmer. You heard it here first, everybody. <laughs> Awesome interview with the one and only JJ Gilmer. I'm with Gary John Kane right now, and we were listening to a track called Me and You on YouTube. Right. Fantastic. Right, so you were in a band. Tell us about this. Oh, another JJ story, and I'd be happy to tell you. We got that classic when musicians are all skint and they get offered. In the good old days, with corporate gigs come in, mm-hmm. and you get sponsored by like whiskey, you know, whiskey companies and Guinness, and that. So we did a gig, I think we did one in Cote Rose, Glasgow, and down to Freeze, but we're called The Collective, and it was myself. Jinky, JJ at front, Jinky, that's his name. Uh, Ross McFarlane, who's now in Texas, he was playing drums. 
My brother, Greg Cage, Cry, and Brian McPhee, who's plays in the big dish in this new band, Lowland Slack. So great guitar player, it was a great, Brian. great, great band and great fun. We did like Beatles covers. We did like, I'm sure we did a Hugh and Cry song. We did a Silencer song. I'm sure we even did Stiltskin song that one inside right at the time. I wasn't in the Proclaimers at the time, so no did a song for me. I didn't have any songs, nobody knew them. And we did uh, Miss America, I think, Brian McPhee. We did, like, Elvis Costello covers, the Beatles and all that. It was absolutely fantastic. So, I wish it had lasted longer, but it only lasted for about six months and everybody had to go and do their own things again. But that was a great band. It was great fun. What, what a laugh. I mean, he's brought, and that's, that sounds like a great band. Again, reunion, possible reunion? There's a lot of reunions going on there now, and I think we'll need to let them all get, get together, get Oasis out of the way first, not them, them <laughs> you know, <laughs> let them all go, then we, can, then we can come back to the back. I don't want to take over Oasis and Martin next year when they come back together. Exactly, yeah, exactly. I'm not saying they are coming back together, that's not an exclusive, but it's looking like it. I think so. Aye, Noel's running out of money, man, you know what I mean? Not, no, Liam, probably. Liam? Aye. That is likely. Talk to us about Marianne Faithful. Marianne Faithful, God's sake, a year, a year in the life that was, or two years. She did an album called Kissing Time. It's a great story how we got the gig. And then um, one of the albums, like Beck writes for you, Billy Corgan writes for you, Jarvis Cocker wrote for it, Damon Auburn, one of those great albums on Virgin, right? And they all wrote these songs for her. Wow. So she had a band, all these New Yorker guys who were all very sort of. And I mean, she told us the story that she was in Poland. See, this is about February time, 2001. Doing a festival and the drummer goes on, the drummer goes on his kit and says, "These are the bane of my life." Talking about his sticks, you know what I mean? So she just went, "Get this band out here! I can't. If it's the bane of the life, I'm paying the money." So the roadie at that time was a guy called Brian Murray, a Scottish guy, Glasgow guy who'd worked with my brothers, worked with me, and a friend. So he said, "Vanny, I feel like, could you get a band together in two weeks to do this whole tour? Because I don't want this band anywhere near me. It's just negative." So there we are. We get a phone call. We get an Irish drummer in because I think Ross couldn't do it at the time, Ross McFarlane. Johnny Boyle came in, who was in Picture House, a great drummer, cracking guy. Me, McPhee, and a guy called Andy May, who's currently playing with Justin Curry and stuff. So we got that band in Mary Hill. That's, an, that's a true story, right? Mary Hill Studios, <laughs> rehearsing, and the door opens. Marianne Fifa comes in, right? And sits down on the Why floor. Why have I never heard this before? This is great. Because I'm, I, you don't go to the pub enough, Scott. You should come to the pub and listen to me bored up to death every week. No, but somebody's got to remind me, right? I'm getting that age now. You go, oh shit. Oh, sorry, sorry for swear. <laughs> so she sits down and she sits. We're all sort of nervous and all that. We'd learned all the songs that we're supposed to learn. We thought, and she goes, oh, who cares about all that? Sit down, sit down, squat down. So we had to sit in a circle. She stood. All I want you to do is support me. Just support me. So it was like, what a great way to introduce yourself to a band. And then the, the manager, her boyfriend at the time, was a French guy called Francois, he comes in and goes, What is it you all drink up here? Is it tenants? Is it tenants? She comes in with like 10 cans of tenants, right? See with these accents, <laughs> this is, this is, I've River City. <laughs> I've taken note. I was thinking of phone up Family Guy. I could do all the voices of Family Guy. I think Simpsons. so. It's just it's, this, this is this is good. This is going to be a game changer. It's either this I'm podcast. insane or I'm just trying to be smart on the radio. I think that's one of the two. Yeah, it's all good, but sorry, continue. So anyway, so there we did. We sat down, we squatted down, and we played a couple of songs from the Kissing Time album. She loved it. Then she took us off for some eating bar Miro and we even went to the Grove. Now this is a true story. People don't. Marianne Faithful was sitting in the Grove Bar, right? The weeest, oldest man's pub in the West End, and we all got the gig. And that oh. was that, that. That was it. The next time, obviously, we terraced like one solid to get it right. But we did a full year, right? All the world around the world from bloody. We didn't go to Japan, which was unfortunate. I've never been to Japan. Everybody else seems to have been there, but I've never been there. But we went all the way through Australia, America, two tours, loads of radio shows. Basically, a year and a half, and the best hotels you've ever seen. It was all the Montreal Festival, the Montreal Jazz Festival, and it was the Palace Hotel in Montreal and all that. 
I walked in, like, I thought it was all, we're all staying in the one room. It was just insane. So I came for nothing. And then when I joined the Proclaimers, it was two to a room. In the Premier Inns, it was like, what's happened to me? <laughs> I thought I was gone, man. I walked with these butlers and all that. I was like, soon I got a reality check, that one. But it right. brings you back down to earth. I wanted, in a minute, we're going to talk about how you get the Proclaimers gig. But one more thing in Marianne Faithful. You tell me the story about going to a Stones gig with her. Oh, even better. I think that Marianne Fievel 2 finished in uh, Sydney and the Stones at that time were doing a stadium shed small gig in every city over yeah. a week so they took over a t- city for a week basically the Stones came I don't think they did it in Britain but they did it in Australia and America so it was the Enmore Theatre in Sydney and we'd played it with Marianne Fievel about three weeks before it so I had no three mobile phone times really nobody really had mobile phones internet was maybe hotmail so I said, I'm going to never been to Australia, so I'm going to stay on in Sydney for two weeks just to check out, as you do, you know what I mean? And I said to the manager, is there any chance you get a ticket? Because the Stones are renowned for being tight. They don't give guests lists. They pay for the tickets for the guests. So every ticket's accounted for, right? That's, right. that's just the way the Stones do it. As they should be, because you don't want guest lists, guys don't turn up and all that's rubbish. So there you go. I'm sitting in this hostel, which I stayed at, a sort of bed and breakfast hostel, and the phone goes... Phone the manager and it's Francois again. Can I do the French accent? Of course. He said, Ditto, you little Scotsman. I got your bloody ticket. You can go with Marianne. I was like, And he <laughs> said, And he says, He says, Meet us down at the Four Seasons, right? And what, what, six o'clock at night, such a day at Friday night or something. So I mean, that's the Thursday. I'm, 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 I'm over the moon. I'm down the pub. The Dicey Riley's, I think it was called, a Rosie O'Grady's, this Irish bar. Telling everybody I've got a Stones ticket, and they're all looking at me going, Who's this nutcase? I mean, you, don't, you don't get Stones tickets for that gig, it's, it's like total, there's only 1200 people in it, you don't get into that. So I got up the next day, got a new shirt and all that, found an iron and everything, so I was looking cracking, even though it was a million degrees, I still like, tried to look my best. I mean, the sweat was pouring out. So I, I guess down to the, the, the Four Seasons Hotel, and I'm sitting in the Four Seasons Hotel, and there's nobody in it, and I'm like, This isn't right. So I'm like, looking about, so it's all cocktail bars and stuff, I was like, Went up to the barman who's sort of Tom Cruise that he's not pure cool guy and he says, uh, I says, it's, it's Rolling Stones staying here. And he's like, his hands polishing the glasses like, nah mate. I says, I was told to meet them at the, the, the Four Seasons. He's like, mate, he picked up a menu. I was at the, the All Seasons. I <laughs> went to the wrong bloody hotel. <laughs> so I says, where is it? He's like, it's about 10 blocks that way. So I'm looking a million dollars, not sweating, having to run down this street in Sydney, 10 blocks. Honestly, I got there looking at something. a million oh, degrees. Oh, what a nick I was in. So I gets to the door and I'm like, I'm here to meet Marianne Faithful and the bouncer guy, man, honestly, is about 20 foot tall. <laughs> yeah, mate, so am I. <laughs> and eventually I got something he got with me. We got in and we sat. Charlie Watts was there. I don't want to go, yeah, I was with the stones. Charlie Watts was sitting Ronnie Wood. It was Ronnie Wood that got Marianne the tickets. So I sat with him and the guy, no, right, you, right, Buzz, 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 the guy that did Romeo and Juliet, not Buzz Learman, not the guy, the, the Australian producer guy. Right. Him and his wife, cracking. And basically said, right, let's go down, Traz goes, and the Stones, Mick and Keith come down and all that, down the stairs. Didn't get close to him, but maybe 100 yards, and then the limousines start taking him to the gig. So we're in one of the limousines, right? Me, Marianne Faithful, our manager, blah, blah, blah. So he gets outside Denmore Theatre. Chaos, I mean, you can imagine it. People like that. So Marianne Faithful just grabs my hand, we walk in, front row of the balcony. Everybody's come up to her, and I've got a kid on security with her, and she's looks at, oh, Gary, it takes me back. Because obviously, we're in love. You can see she still love each other, because then he sat. Mick Jagger, a song called Wild Horses, and it's about her. I think she had a wee bit of a bad turn in Australia, apparently, when she flew over and she had an overdose or whatever. And he wrote Wild Horses about her. So he's sitting in the crowd, and he's looking up at me, and, or not looking at me, but he's looking at Marianne Favelstein next to me, and he goes, This one's for the girl in the audience, she knows who she is. And he pointed up like that. 
He sang Wild Horses. I swear to God, man, I'm going to write a book. Do you know what? I'm actually after you've said this has made me want to write a book. Ladies and gentlemen, not only have we announced the Toy Tin Soldier reunion, the new Proclaimers album, the Oasis reunion, but Gary John Kane is going to write a book, and also I'm going to be in the button up video. Yes, you're the man at the bar. He's a lot, his hands. A, lot, a lot of announcements. So what was Charlie Watson, Ronnie Wood like? Charlie Watts didn't say anything, as you can imagine, just sat there, but Ronnie Wood's classic, charismatic, Char- Charlie, Charlie, Charlie just sat there, sort of, he nodded, and I always called my unfaithful boss, right boss, and she loved that, because obviously, I don't know, from a different time, where women weren't really regarded as cool, but obviously it's changed days now, Scott, as feminists that we are, and, um, and so I always called right boss, and she loved that, and that's the only thing Charlie Watts was, goes, who's you calling boss? And I was like, Marianne, he's like, <laughs> that was it. But Ronnie Wood go. was like, so he was talking about the table, but it was it was literally, I was supposed to be there two hours before it, but I'm sitting in this other hotel, like a clown, so I could have had a better, <laughs> I could have had a better two hours, they're all sitting, they've, all, they've eaten, they're on the White Russians at this time, and I was still in, you know, fighting through security to get in, but if it, if that, it's a that, great night. That damn old seasons place. I mean, how dare they have two things called seasons in the one, even though it's different names, but how am I supposed to know that? Exactly. I'm from Scotland, I'm from Scotland. Exactly. I mean, you got a Thistle Hotel. You get the help. Right, it's nothing well, else. Well, that's the problem. They're not catering for us foreigners. <laughs> for, for, for the, <laughs> the half brain bass players that are still around the world in the heat. I mean, but at least I didn't wear my football top. That'd have been a bigger redneck. So at least I bought a new shirt. You know, <laughs> 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 Scotland, Scotland away so strip. One of those yellow ones. A big Scotland away strip. Like, all right. Because <laughs> I remember well, one last thing on that. The guys from. Hopefully, no, no deal get offended here. The guys from Pearl and the Teenies band were telling you, yeah, we supported the Stones, and you're like... Oh, that was a classic at the bar, they're giving it all the flick, they've got loads of great hair. Pearl and the Teenies band, all the band get cracking hair, and the hair you can flick. You know, when, you, when you talk, and I've never had that, I've always been a baldy, right? So it's like, so when guys <laughs> when guys are great musicians and they can flick their hair, I'm always dead jealous. I mean, so instant hatred, I mean, but they're friends, I'm only joking, they're all mates. But they're all, I know the bass player and the drummer really well, that band, and... Uh, a great band, that new album stunning, Bobby Palmer. Can you hear Absolutely, absolutely stunning. That's another break your heart. He's what a voice. But anyway, a lovely guy too, and he gets his round in. But apart from that, aye, so they were giving it, yeah, we played Rod Stewart, Stones, and all that. And, and, and someone said, Big man, Big Gano's got a Stone story, and they're like, Oh, yeah, flicking the hair as if, what are you going to say? Your proclaimers did, what are you going to say? You know what I mean? You played the West End part or something. <laughs> So I told them that story and I actually got two seconds of cool. So I was cool for at least two seconds in that company and the hair stopped flicking as well. <laughs> and then you made the mistake of telling the River City story. And I, like, I'll forget and I it, think mate. two of them took their shades off to listen to the story as well. So <laughs> quite, that was a good thing for me. You know I mean? When the cool guys take their shades off to listen to you, you know you're in. You know what I mean? oh. But that was me sent back to the table after that. I got my story. So I was cool for 10 minutes. It was great. 10 seconds, sorry. Ladies and gentlemen, all you JJ Gilmore fans, we hope you've uh, enjoyed this podcast. <laughs> Thanks, sorry, JJ, I've took over it. <laughs> Your album's great, I love you. <laughs> We've been on a little bit of a tangent, but it's great nonetheless. Gary John Kane, JJ Gilmore, absolute pleasure having you guys on the podcast. ScottCowie.com, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, SoundCloud, do sign it, up, do subscribe. ScottCowie.com, ButtonUpRecords.com, make that your second protocol. ScottCowie.com, make that your priority. I was going to say some third one there, but we won't do that. <laughs> <laughs> we will see you guys next week. I'm stopping this. Free gets two out of hand.